RadioInfluence.com. Welcome back to the Lawfather Podcast. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. It does help us out a lot. And as some of you may see, uh, we have video going now, and we are airing the entire podcast on YouTube as well. So feel free to check all of those places out. Listener questions, call or text 855-LAWFATHER. If you ever have a personal injury question or you have a case that you would like to hire us for, 855-LAWFATHER works for that as well. And lawfather at tampalawfather.com is the email address specifically dedicated to this show. So want to get into a few things today. Um, and you know the reality is both professions that I've worked in, both in law enforcement and as a lawyer, tend to be things that we get involved when things go bad. Okay, uh, a lot of times there's no good ending to these stories, uh, and this absolutely falls into that category. There is no good ending to what we're going to talk about today. Uh, slight tie-in to last week's show where we talked about it briefly. Uh, there was a, a shooting of a Miami high school football coach last weekend by his uh, nephew, or uh, a couple weeks ago now in the last show we talked about it. Uh, and the nephew who actually had done the shooting of this uh, of his uncle is the son of one of the guys that we are going to talk about today, one of the robbers that we are going to talk about today or that I am going to talk about today. So here it is. And this happened in South Florida. This happened in 2019, end of 2019 in South Florida, uh, basically uh, shortly before the entire world shut down. Uh, So it made big news then and it's kind of gone away, but it's creeping back into the news again, especially down in South Florida. So Here's what it is. Here's your scenario, if you will. Two guys dressed as postal workers. They're not actually postal workers. They are just guys who are uh, pretending to be postal workers. Go to a jewelry store at the Miracle Mile in Coral Gables, Florida. And they ring the buzzer. The jewelry store is closed at the time. But being that they're dressed in U.S. post office gear, they're let into the store. Well, they then in turn rob the store. And after that, after any good robbery, you uh, flee the scene, right? Uh, That would be how it goes. And really, this whole thing plays out much like a movie scene. So we have the guys who show up as fake postal workers. They rob the jewelry store. They leave. They don't just leave on foot. They don't just leave in some unknown getaway car. They don't leave in the U-Haul truck that they came in. Okay, they steal a UPS truck, a UPS truck with somebody in it. Okay, so now they are taking a hostage. They do take the hostage, which was the UPS driver, and throw him in the back. Now you have these two guys dressed as postal workers fleeing this scene in a UPS truck. This is the thing of movies. It absolutely is. Now, Look, this is a very real scenario. It really happened, and it has a really bad end to it. But that said, ends up in a police chase, Miami-Dade County up to Broward County, six police agencies involved in this chase. Shootout ensues at the, at the conclusion of this chase, and I believe both robbers were killed. The UPS driver was killed and a civilian in a car in and around the area of the shootout was killed as well, okay? So 
really bad story as far as that goes. All right. Just there's no good end result when you're talking about several people being shot and killed as a result of a shootout. Now, here's where things take a turn in that the family of the UPS driver and the family of the civilian that was shot have filed lawsuits against all of the six police agencies involved in this police chase. So that's where we are. Let's look a little bit at the mechanics of how that happens and then let's dive into what some of the allegations are and let's look at what real life police tactics look like and what it's like to be in a car chase, what it's like to be in a shootout. Okay, because it's really easy to Monday morning quarterback these things. It really is. And me being on this side of the table now, it's a lot easier for me to go, well, you should have done this, this, this and this. But then I flip the switch and think about what was it like being in a car chase? What was it like in those seconds of sheer absolute terror? There's no amount of training that can prepare you for some of these things that happen. Okay. There's no amount of high speed vehicle pursuit training that fully prepares you for being on congested roadways, being shot at, uh, positioning cars in the right way as you're doing 90 to 100 miles an hour, let's say, chasing a car, chasing a truck. Okay. It is controlled terror, if you will, uh, because, hey, you're doing several things. Okay, let's not forget that you're not just driving a car at the time. You're driving a car. You're trying to avoid each and every object in front of you. You're trying to follow this guy. You don't know where he's going. You don't know what turns he's going to make, or he or she. Uh, In this case, it was uh, two gentlemen. You don't know what turns they're going to make. Uh, You don't know when they're going to stop, when they're going to speed up. You don't know any of that. But in the meantime, you're also updating radio and watching for everything. Okay. So that's what's going on as these things are happening. So let's look at what what the allegations are. Okay. But before the allegations can be made, before a lawsuit can be brought, there are some special things that need to be done because these agencies are part of a governmental entity. And there are some special rules when we're talking about how do you engage in a lawsuit with a governmental entity, okay? If you want to just sue your neighbor because they did something, you can do that. You can go into court tomorrow, file a complaint, and you have your lawsuit started. But that's not how it works with governmental entities. There is a piece of what's called common law. And common law is basically, if we trace it all the way back to the beginning of the country and the law that is was in place and how it changed over the years, okay, that's common law. Common law has been broadly abrogated by uh, statutory law. But the way the law works is that in the absence of a statute or case law related to a statute, you default back to common law. So that's how that peace works. And what we're talking about here today is sovereign immunity. And sovereign immunity is essentially a fancy way of saying a governmental entity cannot be sued unless they give you permission to sue them. Or, as the case is in Florida, if there's a statute that allows governmental entities to be sued. Okay? Federal government has sovereign immunity in place 
They have not taken it away via statute. There are things that you have to do to get them to agree to be sued. Statute of limitations are much different as well. Come into Florida, statute says you can sue a governmental entity. You're allowed to, but you have to do special things. You have to wait six months. You have to, and in that six-month period, your, your six months starts once you put that governmental entity on notice and there's a claim form and it's all statutory and it tells you every little piece that you have to put into it, you have to give them with specificity where it happened, what happened, if the plaintiff has any judgments against them. There's several enumerated pieces that you have to put in there. And if you don't follow every one of those rules, the defendant entity can come in and go, nope, we moved to dismiss because you didn't follow all of the rules. So that's what would have happened. That's what would have predated this lawsuit being filed. So let's look at the allegations in the lawsuit. As a whole, okay, generically speaking, the allegations are the agencies were negligent in their actions. They did things that they shouldn't have done. But let's look at each enumerated piece and uh, we'll go from there. So failing to stop the truck in an area that was not populated by civilians. So stopping the UP, they didn't, the police didn't stop the UPS truck in an area that was not populated by civilians. Failing to corral, direct, or otherwise lead the truck away from civilian traffic. Failing to evacuate Merrimar Parkway. Failing to negotiate with the robbers in an effort to avoid the use of force. Failing to communicate with other law enforcement agencies in order to develop and execute a collaborative means of addressing the hostage scenario. Failing to allow civilian traffic on the Miramar Parkway from continuing to drive, thereby isolating the truck. Incorrectly creating a blockage on the Miramar Parkway, causing the truck to be stopped among civilian vehicles. Failing to follow standard police procedures and practices for conducting a vehicular pursuit. Incorrectly discharging firearms upon the truck, uh, knowing that civilian cars were around. Failing to respond reasonably to gunfire. Okay, think about that one for a second. I'll read it again. Failing to respond reasonably to gunfire. So they're being shot at and they're being asked to act reasonably. Uh, failing to identify and specifically tar locate a target before discharging a firearm. Failing to keep a distance from the truck in order to decrease tensions. Allowing tactics to be implemented that resulted in the ex escalation of a potentially volatile situation. Failing to intervene while officers were aware that fellow law enforcement officers were acting unreasonably. Dangerously using vehicles occupied by civilians as shields and or barricades during a shootout. Failing to provide specific aid to civilians trapped in the midst of a shootout. Additional acts of negligence not yet discovered. So pretty long list. Let's dive into a couple of these because, look, never been in a shootout. Been in plenty of car chases, plenty of foot chases, plenty of instances with criminals with guns, okay, which ended more in hand-to-hand -hand combat than anything else. Okay, uh, been through several trainings, live shooter trainings, which are about as close as you can get to shootout type training. And actually, uh, well, I was at the Pinellas County Sheriff's Office, and this was in 06. They were pretty ahead of the times. Uh, we had a video 
room set up and it was this interactive big projector screen and it would actually shoot little balls back at you. And I, I believe we had a shootout scenario in that, if I remember correctly. And like I said, the live shooter situations where uh, both, uh, mostly I believe in Pinellas County, we did them uh, and we had used a vacant office building at the time, one of the high rises in downtown St. Pete and guys with real guns, fake ammunition. All right, because can't go around shooting people in training. They would not end well for anybody, uh, but they have what was called sim rounds and they're basically little paintballs, but they have the look, the sound, the feel, and they come out of real life firearms. Okay, so looking at that, it gives you a really good indication, really good understanding, okay, kind of shoot, don't shoot, what happens, how it works, and kind of the chaos that ensues. And, you know, controlled terror, chaos, look, and in law enforcement, you go through all of this training, but training is just that training, you know, that there's no deadly end result. There's no way to train for that mindset of knowing I have these two bad guys that just robbed the jewelry store, took us on a chase that went through six jurisdictions, and now they're shooting at us. There's no amount of training that gets you ready for that scenario. There's no amount of training that you get to go, oh, this is calm, this is easy, I'm going to just think my way through it. No, you're going to default to the training that you had and we see that in some of these things. So let's look at this and I'm gonna take a couple of these, the failing to stop the truck or control, corral, direct, or otherwise lead the truck away from civilian traffic. It's not always that simple in a car chase. It's not always that simple to stop a car where you want it to. Most times, these things end up with a crash. That's just the reality. You don't know where that crash is going to happen, okay? Um, one of the, the biggest ones that I remember in Pinellas County, we were over by Bay Pines Hospital. It ended in a crash. Luckily for all of us, it ended up on a side road that was near the boat ramp that not a residential area. Uh, it just so happened is kind of a desolate area that this guy turned down into and crashed the car. Ended up easy because, hey, that's where he crashed. Been in car chases that have ended up with crashes on Olmerton Road, which is a major thoroughfare. So you don't always get to choose where these guys stop, right? And even if they don't crash, if they decide to just stop and get out and run, you don't get that choice. You don't get to say, hey, Get back in that car. I need you to keep running until we can get to an area that's less populated. Now, South Florida is very, very populated. So I'm not really sure where you get into that area that is less densely populated by civilians. Now, evacuated Miramar Parkway, maybe, okay. But was there enough police personnel on scene to effectively evacuate people from that or were they all engaged in the shootout? And was that the best place for them to be? Now, look, there's more questions than answers in this thing. And the reality is we're Monday morning quarterbacking something that happens essentially in the blink of an eye and decisions are made really in the blink of an eye as well. All well, by the way, people are shooting at you. So kind of ups the ante a little bit. Uh, failing to negotiate with the robbers not really sure. Uh, not really sure that a whole lot of negotiation that goes on with somebody who's shooting at you. 
Now, failing to communicate with other law enforcement agencies, I, I think there's probably something to that issue there. And it's an issue that comes up in law enforcement, uh, being in Hillsborough County and Pinellas County. We had city areas that butted up against our county areas. And it did. It became difficult because the reality is they had their own radio setup and their own radio frequencies. And there wasn't the ability to, to have that conversation back and forth. The way you had to do it was you had to go through dispatch. So in Pinellas County, we would call our dispatch and tell them, hey, let St. Pete know this is going on. And then St. Pete dispatch would relay it to their officers. Does that cause problems sometimes? Yeah, it absolutely does. Uh, I can tell you I was doing a, an arrest warrant in Southside St. Pete, and my supervisor said, hey, instead of us sending two county cars down to Southside St. Pete to see if this guy's still there, because most times when we would get a call saying, hey, there's a guy that has a warrant here, I want you to come arrest him, we'd get there and there would be nobody there. Or the guy or the girl who had the warrant wouldn't be there. Well, this particular time, the person was there. And he decided to run. I decided to run. And the St. Pete officer that was with me decided to run also. Uh, the guy ended up in an attic in the house, uh, kind of disappeared. But in the meantime, in the kind of melee that was going on, uh, ended up having a fight started with uh, one of the guys that was in the house who decided that he didn't want me to arrest. I think it was his uncle. And he decided he wanted to fight me. So we get in a fight in his mom's kitchen and the St. Pete officer is there literally doing nothing. Um, just, it, it was, that's how it was uh, at the time uh, in, in 06 to 08 in, uh, in Pinellas County. And, and I think the climate's different there now with the St. Pete Police Department. But I make a call on the radio and my only way to get people there is to let my dispatch know, hey, I need more people. I Basically, I'm asking, I need deputies to get there. I, I, St. Pete isn't necessarily working out for me. And, uh, but we had a way that we would call in that we needed backup and we needed backup to come with their lights and sirens on. So that's how I asked for it. Well, our dispatch relayed that information to St. Pete dispatch and St. Pete dispatch related to their officers under uh, what was called 10-1, which is as emergency as emergent gets. Okay. Um, I can tell you in, in six years in law enforcement, I never once used it. I never once heard it called out. Okay. It is, everything is going extremely bad. Probably, you know, think about a shootout. That would likely be a good time to make a 10-1 call. Okay. But the call that we use in Pinellas County translated to the equivalent of 10-1 to St. Pete police and it caused problems. It caused problems with their response and it caused problems with their superiors on the backside. Luckily, uh, we had really good uh, superiors in uh, Pinellas County who were able to figure out what happened and piece it all together. So could communication be better? Could that be some change that comes of this lawsuit? I think so. I think that's really very important because I do think that there could be potentially some negligence involved because hey, we all know these are tight quarters. We all know there's a, an overlap, maybe not an overlap, but a, a matching up of jurisdictions along the way here. So should they all be on the same page? Yeah, most likely so. Uh, failing to follow standard police procedures and practices, probably. I can tell you uh, there's no pursuit that I was ever in that didn't violate every procedure, not every procedure, but that didn't violate pursuit policies. Um, 
I believe we could have two or three cars involved in a pursuit at any one time. And if there is a pursuit, you better believe there is probably six or seven that were actively involved in the pursuit. Uh, here's, here's the one that I, I, I can't get behind. I absolutely can't get behind this, but failing to respond reasonably to gunfire. I'm not sure what a reasonable response to gunfire is, um, getting out of the way, which they seem to have done, but then in turn, they seem to have done it negligently. Um, do I think that they meant to be negligent in using civilian cars as as a shield, which comes up as as uh, one of the counts here or, or one of the allegations here? And no, I, I mean, that's how, that's the training, right? The training is, you're in a shootout, you have cars, you can't hide behind the car itself. There's only specified places that you can because it turns out bullets will actually go through doors of a car, engine block, uh, the, the wheels. Those things actually will stop rounds. But think about it, there's a lot of air in between those. There's a lot of ability to still get shot even if you're in those areas. Now, should they have used civilian vehicles with civilians in them? Probably not. It, could there have been a safer way to do it? Maybe, okay? Did they take any of these civilians out of their cars? Did they try to use the cars as shields for the civilians also, okay? If that's the case, then I don't see where they're necessarily negligent here, okay? If they were to say, hey, civilian, it's safer for you to be behind this wheel, okay? Because you're more protected. I can't get you out of the area because, well, the bad guys are shooting. Yeah, we're shooting back at them, but the bad guys are shooting. Right. So, yes, it's nice in a vacuum to look at this and go, well, you should have removed them from the area. You shouldn't have used their cars as shields. But hey, the reality is you might not have been able to pull them out of the scene safely. OK, um, the one that I can can truly get behind is this failing to identify and specifically locating a target before discharging a firearm. Now, the reality is in law enforcement. You are responsible for every bullet that comes out of your gun. That's it, period. End of story. You are responsible for where that bullet ends up. Okay? So you shoot a civilian because you missed your target. That is on you. All right? Uh, in a, a, a less, uh, less serious scenario, but more relatable, Think about it, golfers, okay? Those of you who are like me who will go out and golf and by God, the, the houses on the right side of the fairway, their windows are not safe. <laughs> their pools, not safe either, okay? But you go and you break a window because you had an errant shot. You hit somebody who's laying out by their pool and you put a big, big old knot in their head. Guess what? It's not on them for living on the golf course it's on you for you hitting the errant shot, okay? So you could actually be held liable, you could be negligent, you could be sued for their damages, okay? Same thing here. Yeah, different scenario because, well, hey, it's not a golf ball, it's a bullet, so it's different, but it's the same. That you are responsible for every bullet that comes out of your gun and they take a lot of time in training with that. You, you, you know, you learn distances and how far you can accurately shoot with a handgun, uh, how far you can ac accurately shoot 
with an AR, okay? Yes, I know AR-15s have become kind of a lightning rod on the political scene. However, in a situation like this, in a shootout, out in the open, it can be a really good tool because you can be more accurate from a longer range. And in a situation like this, accuracy is king. Now, the trade-off is, is there can be some issues due to the velocity of those rounds and how they can go through more things. So, um, But it's really, really important to be accurate in these situations. So you can be more accurate from a longer range, right? Think 50 yards with a handgun, no chance. No chance I'm taking that shot in law enforcement with a Glock 40, which is what we carried at Hillsborough County. Not, not if it's a heavily populated area. If I'm in the woods and there's a guy and he's not moving and I'm 50 yards away, maybe, maybe, still ridiculously far shot. 50 yards with an AR-15 in close quarters, which this would have been, that would be a more appropriate choice. Okay, um, and, and I know it's it's kind of dark and grim uh, of what we're talking about here in this. We're talking about better choices in a shootout of, of what's used to stop somebody, but that's what we have here. So I can get behind the failing to identify and specifically locating a target before discharging a firearm. Now, let's take and let's look at something else with that and something that we talked about last week, the Breonna Taylor, the search warrant. Now, one of the officers out of the three that fired were charged, okay, fired their weapons. I know one of them was actually also fired from the department, but the one that was fired from the department was also charged with three counts. I believe it was some kind of endangerment count. Same thing as what we're looking at here, but on the criminal side, right? He took and he shot through a window and he didn't really know what he was shooting at and he shot into the apartment next to him or next to uh, Breonna Taylor, okay? Same thing. Didn't know where he was shooting. Shot kind of randomly, okay? So we see this come up, and does it come up in these high-pressure situations? Sure, but your training should be better than that. You should know better than that. Now, in either of these scenarios, do we know whether or not they just missed, or were they just shooting blindly? We don't know. Is there a difference when we look at it from the legal side? No. Missing and just shooting blindly and not knowing what you're shooting at are two different things. Or excuse me, are, are, are two of the same things when we're talking about from the legal side. You need to know what you're shooting at. And if you miss, it's on you. So it is on you to practice. Practice, practice, practice. In the words of Alan Iverson, we're talking about practice. All right. Yes, I know lives are busy and everything else, but you've been entrusted with carrying a gun and protecting people, and you never know when a shootout with a UPS truck is going to pop up. Uh, failing to intervene, while officers were aware that fellow law enforcement officers were acting unreasonably, yeah, you know, in an isolated, we'll call it calm situation, that could work, uh, i.e. Minneapolis, right? Not the pandemonium of a shootout to compare and contrast Minneapolis, right? Because you had three or four officers that were just kind of standing around and there wasn't you know, other than what was going on. And I'm not downplaying it, but to, to show the difference, right? 
people are actively shooting at you. People are not actively shooting at you. And you have what seems to be a controlled environment because you're just standing around talking. Okay. And you don't take action when you see something going on. Yes, you're negligent. You're 100% negligent. You should. Were you acting unreasonably because in the middle of a shootout, you didn't go over and tell that officer who was maybe shooting at God knows what, that he should actually pay attention to where he's shooting? Probably not, okay? Because one of a couple things. One, they have to be able to hear you. And I don't know if you've ever heard gunfire, but gunfire is really loud, okay? So they're probably not going to hear you. And or you then have to go from wherever you are to that person might not be the safest thing. And oh, by the way, that also takes into account that you're watching what every other officer is doing and you're not laser focused on what that bad guy with the gun is doing. So you need to be laser focused, but you also have to be big picture focused also. Uh, But does that have to do with the actions of other law enforcement in that situation? No, but you need to be laser focused on that bad guy, what he's doing, but by big picture focus, I mean, you have to know what's behind them, what's to the side of them, and all the other parameters. Because if you are going to throw bullets downrange, you need to know what the target is and where they're going. Failure to provide specific aid to civilians trapped. Maybe, maybe not. Did they have the ability to get to them? Was it safe to get to them? As I mentioned, you don't always get to pick your locations. It just... Sometimes these things end up where they end up and you have to roll with it and do the best you can. So that is what that lawsuit looks like. Do I see it necessarily ending in success? Maybe. But let's look at that one other piece here. You know who's not named as a defendant in this lawsuit? It's kind of interesting. But think about there are two people not named in this lawsuit. Two big players in it are not named. The two robbers. Apparently, according to this lawsuit, the two robbers, well, they did nothing wrong. And I think that's really misguided. And I think that by not including them, I think you're making a mistake. I think you're sending the wrong message. You're sending the message that, hey, the only people that are at fault in this are the police agencies. Or are you doing it because the police agencies are the only ones that have the deep pockets? Now, deep pockets become a little bit different when we're talking about municipalities. Deep pockets are capped at $200,000, okay? Or $300,000 per incident. So if you have multiple people involved, the most that could be paid out is $300,000. And the most that any individual could receive is $200,000. Now, could you go $200,000? and go Miami-Dade Police, Doral Police, Broward Sheriff's Office, Miramar Police, Pembroke Pines, and FHP, Florida Highway Patrol. Yeah, um, I I think you can stack those. I haven't ever seen it. I haven't ever seen a a municipality case that, or a governmental case that had so many defendants. But I think you also have to bring in the two robbers as being part of this. I I absolutely do. Because without them, you don't have any of this chain reaction. Okay? Were their actions reasonable? No. 
They weren't. They, they robbed the jewelry store, they stole a UPS truck, and they were shooting at law enforcement. Now, here becomes the difference. Were their actions negligent or were they tortious, right? And I would say that they're not necessarily negligent. They're more, they fall under tortious, uh, tort, if you will, uh, meaning that they did it intentionally, okay? They intentionally shot at somebody, okay? I think you could probably bring counts on both, and that brings us to what would be called joint and several liability, meaning that you have all of these people, and we're not saying one is more responsible than the other one. We're saying all of you played into this, and we don't necessarily care who pays what, but all of you are equally, or not necessarily equally, but we can't determine who is more at fault than the other one. So what you could have in a situation like that is, you could go, Miami-Dade Police Department, for example, could go, okay, we're gonna pay out, and we're gonna resolve this thing, and then we're going to go after all of the other defendants to pay us back for their contribution of negligence to this, right? So just to use real life numbers to make it make a little bit more sense, this isn't necessarily how it works in real life, but Miami Miami Police Department could pay out and they could go, okay, well, we're 90% at fault and the rest of you make up 10% of the fault. So each of you chip into us the remaining 10% and we're good. And they could sue for that and, and go from there. But like I said, not really how it works in real life, but essentially that's how it breaks down. So that's what that lawsuit looks like, okay? Remember, two guys dressed as a UP, as uh, US mail workers show up, rob a jewelry store, flee, flee in a UPS truck, get in a shootout, goes through six jurisdictions, and uh, or get in a police pursuit, goes through six jurisdictions in the pursuit, shootout happens in Miramar Parkway, and the lawsuit says, well, you should have done more to protect the hostage, which gets lost in this, if we think about it for a second, the hostages in the UPS truck, the guys shooting at the police are in the UPS truck. I am really unclear on how you necessarily get that person out of the UPS truck safely. Um, at the end of the day, you're responsible for your bullets, okay? Um, you really are, so it, it essentially doesn't matter in a sense that you could have a hostage and you could have the bad guy holding the hostage and holding a gun to the hostage hostage's head. And you go, hey, and this is a, this is a real life shoot, don't shoot scenario in training. And uh, we would use paper targets, obviously, because we can't use real people for the training. But they would have paper targets set up and they'd be, you know, 15 to 25 feet. And you have to decide, do you shoot the bad guy with the gun that's holding the hostage right in front of him, like you would see in a movie? Or do you not shoot? And if you shoot and you miss and you hit the hostage, that's on you. You're negligent. Okay. That's the harsh reality of it. So, you know, is it, is it tough to fault these guys and girls in law enforcement who are in the shooting? Yeah. But are they ultimately responsible for the rounds they throw down range? Yes. Are they responsible for every bit that we discussed? No, I don't think so. I think there's some things here that just from a common sense standpoint go, yeah, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Okay. Should, should law enforcement, especially in areas that abut each other, work on having some way to communicate really efficiently via radio? 
yes, I think that would that would be a step in the right direction for a lot of reasons. I think that would help a lot of things out. But that is what we're looking at, and that's the analysis that we do on these things all day, every day. So we would take these facts in, and we would come up with basically everything that I enumerated and discuss today. That's how we discuss and figure out what we're going to do with cases. So this is real life. This happens all day, every day. And you know, unfortunately, we have to Monday morning quarterback some things, and that's what we see a lot here. But that is how these things work. So I'd like to take this and tie it in to not necessarily a listener question, because it didn't come through as a true listener question, but it is a question that has come up time to time, and it ties in kind of to what we're talking about today because we're talking heavily about law enforcement. And as I was preparing for the podcast today and getting a better understanding of the details of this shootout that we talked about and the ensuing lawsuit, uh, TPD, a Tampa Police Department cruiser, got was in a, a decently bad crash. Uh, at least the damage from the pictures looks like a bad crash. And the question I get every once in a while is whether or not as a law enforcement officer or fire or EMS, if you're involved in a crash, are you able to pursue a lawsuit? Are you able to pursue damages against the driver who caused the crash? Okay. Kind of an important thing uh, because it does come up. Uh, you think about all the miles that that all of these individuals drive. There's a, a high, high chance, a high likelihood of being involved in a crash at some point in their career. And the answer is yes, you can have a claim and an ensuing lawsuit against a private individual as a result of a car crash because it's negligence. Now, the rules are different of, let's say, we'll take it back to the Miami scenario. If one of the officers got shot, there's not really an avenue for that officer to pursue a claim or a lawsuit against one of those shooters. Okay, there's, there's some very specific case law and laws that really prohibit that for the most part. But when we're talking about cars and we're talking about car crashes, and that kind of negligence, yeah, you can absolutely bring a lawsuit. You can absolutely file a claim against their insurance. So any law enforcement out there who's listening, fire, EMS, uh, anybody in that sector, you absolutely can bring a claim against the at-fault driver. You also can use your workers' comp. That would be from your agency. But you could actually also pursue both, workers' comp and personal injury against the driver. And you know, we do that all the time where we work them in conjunction with each other and and kind of go from there. But workers' comp is focused on getting you back to work and the negligence side, the personal injury side is focused on getting you compensated for your injuries, uh, your long-term care and your pain and suffering. That's really the, the major difference between them. But the answer to that question is yes, as a public servant, law enforcement, fire, EMS, any of those public servant jobs, if you're involved in a crash, it's somebody else's fault, you can pursue a negligence claim against them. So that said, covered a lot, covered some really deep topics today. And I appreciate you all listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Please check us out on social media. And uh, it's the Law Father at Law Father Headquarters. Law Father out. This is a Landry Football Quick Fix on Radio Influence. The SEC is kind of the hub of college football fan passion. 
you will get fan passion unlike anybody else in the SEC. But you also get a lot of reaction. And the passion doesn't match the intellect of football. There's this belief, well, they know football. There, well, You know, actually, they don't. You know, very few people, as my experience, truly understand the game. And unless you've coached it, scouted it at this level, you have a hard time getting a good feel for the whys. Everybody has their theory and everybody's engaged. So you got more people talking about it. Trust me. There's just not a lot of understanding of what truly happens. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how I grade a team. But I'm also going to talk about how there's some overreaction, particularly early in the year. What you see is not necessarily what you're going to see in the ensuing weeks. You begin to see a pattern after a few weeks, but always remember, you never stay the same. As a player, as a coach, as a team, during the course of the season, you never stay the same. You either get better or you get worse. It's as simple as that. And I think most people kind of look at it in a way of, well... This is what they were. And, oh, by the way, this team's better than that team because we've been told that and we think that. And then, therefore, by, you know, by proxy, we think that this team that was beaten by a certain team one week uh, is now going to be beaten twice as bad because the next team is twice as good. Again, you don't know who the best teams are. You don't know who the best players are. The film and the games, the actual execution of the process determines who the best teams and players are. The Landry Football Podcast with veteran scout and coach Chris Landry can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com. 